Welcome to the Sad Witch Podcast, a comedic but also painfully earnest podcast about magic and mental health. I'm your local sad witch. You might have seen me hovering over my own body, lingering in the corner of the room observing all my thoughts and behaviors. Just give me a wave. Have you ever been in reality and just thought, I'd rather not? Well, then this is the episode for you. And before we get started, I do feel obliged to acknowledge the pandemic in the room. I hope you're well, although I'm quite certain that you are almost by definition not. But I do want to say it's been an interesting time for mental health. In one way, I feel like I've been in training for this my entire life. Self-isolating, preparing for the end of the world. I've thought the world was about to end since I was eight. I've always felt like catastrophe is just around the corner, and having it arrive was almost a relief. It was validating. I know that's a little absurd, but these are absurd times. One thing that happened is I lost my job, like many of us, but In the first week I was at home, almost all my symptoms of mental illness just evaporated. And I started thinking about how much our mental illness is chemical and spiritual and psychological and grounded in our environment, in our trauma. And how much of it is just late-stage capitalism projecting its bullshit onto us? So if you have chronic mental illness, and you are doing okay, actually, in these times, that's wonderful. One thing I've definitely seen is how much the neurotypicals are struggling dealing with their first ever symptoms of mental illness. Oh no, what are these heart palpitations and cold sweats? And why do I feel like there's impending doom all the time? (laughs) The petty side of me is sitting here like, well, Susan, why don't you just try to calm down? Have you ever heard of deep breathing? But the kinder side of me understands that the first symptoms of mental illness are really scary. I feel like a tour guide of the world's worst museum. On your right, you'll see cold sweats and anxiety dreams. Your recurring nightmare about being in high school and having your teeth fall out is normal. To your left, you'll notice an exceptional work called Panic Attack. No, you're not having a heart attack. You're panicking. I know, it's the worst. And up in the corner there, you'll see my good friend Dissociation. He's watching you too. But if I have to be someone's tour guide, if I can be the Sherpa who guides you up Crazy Mountain to the Looney Summit, well, then at least my expertise will have amounted to something. They say you need to do something for 10,000 hours before you'll truly be a master. So, I'm pretty much a Jedi of anxiety. 
That said, if you have chronic mental illness and this has been very difficult for you, I understand that as well. I have had some new symptoms show up, um, including contamination anxiety, which I noticed I had one day when I started washing my hands and couldn't stop for almost a half hour. Fun. I'm very clean. We're all just doing our best out here. Well, we're all just doing our okayest out here. This is a tough reality to exist in. And the is natural. And it's a coping mechanism. Humans are so fascinating, and your mind will do the most incredible things to protect you. Sometimes to your own detriment. So, I would like to talk today about a bit of depression and a bit of dissociation. I already made an episode about depression that episode was about the big sad. That sort of three of swords heartbreak and ten of swords despair. But there's another kind of depression that I call the yawning void. And this kind of depression can heck up your emotions in new and exciting ways. Have you ever sat cross-legged so long that, without even noticing, you lost all sensation in your legs? And you can't even feel your own hands resting upon them? The yawning void is a lot like that, but your legs is your entire life, your friends, your family, your very existence, and the world around you. Pretty powerful legs. Depression is one of those illnesses that seems to have such wide-ranging symptoms. It can be that you feel things so much. Like a cancer on the full moon, or a Pisces, literally whenever. But it can also be that you don't feel things at all. Like an Aquarius. I'd like to introduce you to my good friend, Anhedonia. And while she does sound like a maiden who should be changed to a cliff to be sacrificed to a monster, she's not nearly as exciting. And that's the point. Nothing is exciting. Anhedonia is the inability to feel pleasure. It's this persistent numbness that seeps into your bones and guts your mind until the only sensation you have left is mild irritation and boredom. Like the little tingles from your limbs that have fallen asleep. But enough useful information. Let's talk about me. In my life, I've dealt with three major depressive episodes, and each lands on a different spot on the scale of yawning void to big sad. When I was 20, I went to therapy for the first time since I was a child. It was the first time that I sought out mental health support instead of having it imposed upon me by the adults around me. And I did this because I believed I was a sociopath. I didn't have a great understanding of mental health, and I felt so detached from reality and the people around me completely incapable of understanding emotions or summoning the correct emotional reaction to the situations around me that I assumed I was a dangerous person. Now, there's a lot of prejudice in this statement, 
I was young and naive. <laughs> First off, some sociopathic people are actually lovely. You can seek treatment for these kinds of conditions. They are not necessarily dangerous. They do not necessarily feel no emotion. But this is what television had taught me, so this is what I believed. And I went to this new age talk therapist who made me rehash all the trauma I'd undergone in my adolescence, which I did with the cold detachment that I lived my life with at that time. But the problem was, I didn't remember a lot of it. And that which I did remember was often in third person. As though I wasn't the person suffering, but someone watching this on television or from the corner of the room. Until this point, I assumed that everyone remembered portions of their life in third person. This is still something I deal with presuming the universality of my symptoms. I recently learned that most people don't visualize their own death multiple times a day, so... Huh. You would think that would be obvious. But you get used to such things. Just as I'd gotten used to living my life outside my life. Being a person of the world but not in it. You know, like an Aquarius. Just kidding, it's actually dissociation. And I know dissociation is a scary word. It feels like big crazy, you know? I feel like the neurotypicals have this idea that there is big crazy and small crazy. So Bell Let's Talk is really concerned about the palatable small crazy, basically the manageable levels of anxiety and depression that are part of the human existence, feelings of isolation, a sprinkle of childhood trauma that you've so bravely worked through, like just enough problems to make you a slightly more nuanced manic pixie dream girl in a 20-something boy's coming-of-age story. But no one who wrote their undergrad dissertation on Franzen's existential angst wants to talk about big crazy, psychotic breaks, hallucinations, dissociative episodes, suicidal ideation. These are metaphors and not experiences. Could you imagine if in 500 days of summer she'd dumped him because she went into a fugue state and abruptly packed her bags and moved to Portland where she sold artisanal chocolates and jams in a fancy boutique convinced everyone her name was Capricia, and when she came to and remembered her previous life, she decided to stick it out, you know, just to see where things went with the aspiring novelist who works exclusively out of fair trade cafes. But of course she didn't, because fictional women are allowed trauma, but not the resulting psychiatric symptoms. Well, I'm here to tell you a secret. Sometimes, small crazy is worse than big crazy, and maybe if that fuckboy with a pompadour and acoustic guitar would look at his big crazy head-on, he'd stop turning people into metaphors. Because my dissociation isn't a reflection of the surveillance state or the panopticon of social media's watchful eye. It's me and my experience. Dissociation is just one of the ways that your mind can protect itself and is quite common during traumatic incidents, especially prolonged trauma. What's interesting about that period of my life is that I hadn't registered that the things that had happened to me were traumatic. They didn't fit the conventional view of trauma, the sort of things you know, of shell shock and, and really horrific things, but they had traumatized me. And I didn't realize 
that they were bad, objectively, until I started telling a story and my therapist started crying while I watched. I don't think that's what therapists are supposed to do. I don't know if this woman was very good at her job. But it made me think a lot. Because she was a third party watching this happen, and it affected her. And I felt that I was also a third party watching it happen. So maybe it affected me too. Spoiler alert, it did! And I spent years unpacking it. Fun. Shadow work. Woo! At that time, the way my mind protected me was by checking out. My living situation was psychologically unbearable, and I was too young to do anything about it. So my brain, ever helpful, said, hey, why don't we just dip and <laughs> I'll come back when this has sorted itself out. I still maintain that this is a sort of superpower. To this day, if I do not want to be in a situation, I can just opt out, no thank you, I'm gone, Bye bye my brain just goes on its own little journey to a different place and a different time, and I completely sever myself from my immediate environment and the world around me. It isn't the healthiest coping mechanism, but it's pretty cool. I know a lot of people spend a lot of time learning how to astrally project. I don't touch that, because... Frankly, I'm trying to convince my spirit to stay in my body, and I feel like giving it a new and fun way to leave won't really help my case. But I just want to take a moment to appreciate my mind for protecting me. It's actually kind of wonderful. <laughs> Sorry, you might hear my cat snoring in the background. <laughs> He's very sleepy. He is not used to me being here all day and constantly disrupting his mandatory 20 hours of daily sleep. But as I was saying, many of these things that people do that are unhealthy are actually coping mechanisms to save you from something much worse. I was doing some training on working with people with substance abuse issues and one of the first thing we learned is that almost everyone with a substance abuse problem is suffering from some form of PTSD and it can be very difficult when they quit because they'll be hit by a sudden onslaught of symptoms they've been staving off with that substance. There is this cultural narrative that as soon as you put down the bottle, you'll get your life back in order and you'll feel great and the happy music will swell and you'll be surrounded by friends and family and birds and sunshine. Pretending like a coping mechanism is just a thin veneer of disordered behavior over an otherwise happy and balanced existence is just a form of victim blaming that is more easily packaged and sold. What actually happens when you take away someone's coping mechanism is you feel a lot worse. You can see why this wouldn't be a great impetus for quitting. Similarly with dissociation, when you start to come back into your body, you might notice that it's not a very great place to be. Your body may have already learned to equate discomfort with danger, and that's going to take more than a training montage to resolve. Since I've been talking for about 20 minutes, I feel like now would be a great time to actually define dissociation. 
To be fair, this is not unprecedented. People usually put the glossary at the back of the book. <laughs> Association is a break in how your mind handles information. You'll likely feel disconnected from your thoughts and feelings and memories and surroundings. It can affect your identity, your perception of time, your conception of the world. Now, to some extent, this is normal. Everyone dissociates. For example, have you ever been driving to a familiar location, arrived, and realized you don't remember the journey? That you were just lost in thought, and yet somehow managed to pilot a vehicle? That's dissociation. Have you ever watched a movie and been so engrossed that when the lights come up and the credits roll, you are shocked to find yourself in a theater? Hey, it's dissociation. We pay money for that. Dissociation becomes a disorder when it starts impairing your ability to function as a person. So now let's check on our good friend DSM and these, the diagnoses around dissociative disorders. As with all diagnoses, take this with a grain of salt. There are a lot of cultural values being imposed in these classifications, as there are in all classifications, but it can be useful to have a framework. So, there are three main kinds of dissociative disorders. Depersonalization, derealization disorder, dissociative amnesia, and dissociative identity disorder. And that is how they are sort of ranked from the best to the worst. So if you have to pick one, start with depersonalization, derealization disorder. You know, you got to train your way up to dissociative identity disorder. So depersonalization is the feeling of detachment from oneself, of not having an identity or feeling separate from one's identity. It's almost like you aren't real. Derealization is the feeling that the world around you isn't real. Almost like you're living in a simulation or watching it happen. If I had seen a psychiatrist at the time, they likely would have diagnosed me with this. And then I could have added it to my arsenal of mental illness. Neat. Please don't diagnose yourself according to the babblings of a witch who lives in your phone. But the general symptoms of this disorder are emotional and physical numbness, a weak sense of self, often a sort of monotone speech, trouble forming and maintaining relationships, trouble recognizing familiar places, people, and objects. That's a weird one. That one's kind of cool. I mean, not cool, but surreal, very surreal. Altered sense of time, brain fog, difficulty thinking clearly, and anxiety. And I want to talk about this now because so much of that has been the very common symptoms people are experiencing in quarantine. I've talked to a lot of people about how time is nothing how days will go by and they'll feel like a week or they'll feel like a minute. How I can't think straight or focus. For example, I was unable to prepare a script for this podcast episode and I'm just winging it because I haven't been able to sit still and write. Anxiety is a pretty normal symptom of life. <laughs> uh, and I think a lot of people are suffering from a weak sense of self and emotional numbness, being cut off from all the aspects of your life that you use to form your identity can be depersonalizing. Now, does that mean we all have this depersonalization, derealization disorder together? 
Not really. But we are dealing with the symptoms, and in that way, many of the treatments will likely still work. So I want to introduce you to the first little bit of magic I want to share with you today, which is grounding. Many witches have grounding rituals, often done before casting. Because you can't put your intention into something if you're not in your body. And I know this seems counterintuitive, because so much of magic is living on this sort of alternative and adjacent reality. But in order to be there, we have to be. We have to be existing and present. Some witches like to cast a circle or have a specific meditation they do. As someone who's undergone a lot of mental health treatment, grounding also has a psychiatric meaning. And I want to share my grounding ritual with you. And it's very easy. And we can do it together right now. It's also the kind of magic you can do anywhere without startling your neighbor Susan, who thinks you're a bad influence on the children with all your satanic imagery. <laughs> so here's my little ritual. First, take a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. One more time. In through your nose, and out through your mouth. Now look around you, and note and name three things you see. I see a snoring cat, a microphone, and a lemon rind in the bottom of an empty glass. Next, name three things you hear. I hear the dissonant strummings of my neighbor who decided to use this time in quarantine to take up the ukulele, which should definitely be a capital offense. I also hear my cat snoring, and I hear the sound of sirens in the distance. Lastly, note and name three things you feel. I feel the carpet on my feet, the cool air on my skin, and my bangs in my eyes because I was already pushing it before this went down and now I look like a scene kid. And that's it. That's the ritual. You can do it again. You can go through it as many times as you need to until you feel very present. This is an effective ritual because it starts out easy with sight, something we're very used to feeling, and gets harder until it forces us into our own bodies. And we'll often be forced to confront uncomfortable sensations like how annoying my bangs are, or how cheap this carpet is. I like to cap off this ritual by standing on the ground in bare feet and feeling the four corners of my feet pressing into the earth or the polyester carpet and imagining my energy rooting down and connecting me to the earth and my environment. Despite the fact that imagination and visualization can be antithetical to grounding, I find that this supports my goal. This is a very good grounding technique specifically for derealization. So if you start to feel that you're not in the world, and that the world isn't real. 
Depersonalization is a little trickier. It's very difficult to convince myself that I'm a person because I don't take advice from non-people and I am non-people. I'm a capstellium, so I barely take advice from people people. Never mind my own figments of my imagination. I'd still recommend doing the grounding ritual, but I feel like the best treatment, best magical treatment for depersonalization is enchanting something ahead of time, when you are present. It's like meal prepping, but for your identity and humanity. Here's what you do. On a good day, you take a sheet of paper and you start writing down things you know to be true about yourself. They can be things that have happened to you, things that you believe. They can be superficial. If you love eating olives and dislike the sound of lead on paper, write that. They don't have to be positive, although I would discourage you from criticizing yourself in this space. Stick to neutral and positive, but make them as literal as possible. Things that are subjective are too easy to dispute when you're in a different state. And when you have your list, put it in a jar with a rock or a bit of earth, and then seal it with a ribbon, or the wax of a yellow candle. And when your sense of self is under siege, you can open it and read it. I like to take a pair of scissors and cut out each line and burn them in the fire of a yellow candle one at a time while reading them aloud. It's fun because fire is fun. And the transformative state of paper into ash represents the transformation and integration of those thoughts back into myself. And it's a fairly simple integration because it's like donating blood to yourself. Your body is prepared to accept it. As always, practice fire safety. Never leave uh, flame unattended, so maybe don't do this if you're deep in the throes of dissociation and tend to leave your body for extended periods of time. Make sure you have some water nearby, which is also important because it is the last element that we need to incorporate. Make sure to use a fireproof container, both so that you have something in which you can burn your candle and something in which you can throw the burning pieces of paper. For an added touch, you can add some dried magical herbs to the bottom of this container so that when you throw in the burning paper, those will catch as well and reinforce the spell. And as I said before, there are two other dissociative disorders. There is dissociative amnesia, and dissociative identity disorder. Dissociative amnesia is really interesting to me. I don't know if I've experienced this or not, but there are parts of my life that I have trouble remembering. And this is beyond just the normal forgetfulness that I also have, um, and is usually associated with trauma. It's also fairly well known that stress in general releases a hormone called cortisol into our brain, which can affect memory. I've heard a few different explanations of how it does this. I've heard that it makes it difficult to form new memories, but can actually aid in recollection. I've also heard the inverse. But the former sounds more probable to me. 
I think of myself as a student staying up all night, hyperventilating and cramming for an exam, and absolutely nothing would stick in my brain. I was just so stressed. And then once I'd given up (laughs) and accepted that I was going to fail, I would go into the exam and have much better memory. But dissociative amnesia as a disorder goes a bit beyond that. Individuals are separated from their memories. It can be forgetting a specific event, or it can be much broader. They can forget everything about themselves and their personal history. They may or may not be aware of this amnesia. And I think it's interesting that one of the signs of dissociative amnesia is that people who suffer from this rarely show concern about their condition because the things that you forget are sometimes things best forgotten. I found online that almost 2% of American adults, I'm not American, but they always have the best stats, uh, experience dissociative amnesia in a given year, which is very common for such a poorly understood mental illness. There isn't a real treatment for dissociative amnesia that's evidence-based and proven through clinical trials, but there are things you can do. I want to talk about remembering and I want to talk about releasing. There are things we want to remember that we want to hold on to. And I think we there are lots of ways to do this. My therapist really wants me to journal, and I mean one day, one day, maybe for her birthday, I'll try. <laughs> but I can't stand it. But... One thing that I can do is have a little box of mementos or just symbolic items, a perfume that makes you think of a certain person, a smell of cedar that reminds me of home, and tapping into those memories through other senses can be comforting to me in a way that reliving events visually might not be. I think this is magical by nature, because objects carry weight with them, they carry memories, and harnessing that, and containing it, and calling on it when you need it, is a magical act. But not everything needs to be held on to. There are many things we are better off letting go of. And this is where banishing comes in. Love a good banishment. If you're interested in learning about uh, Shinto practices, I'm definitely not the right person to teach you. But cleaning and organizing things can be a spiritual practice. uh, And in the Shinto religion, there is an energy and divine spirit of things and objects called kami. So we witches weren't the first ones to come up with this idea. The waning moon is used for banishment. So that is when the moon grows like smaller each day. So after the full moon, it's shrinking and releasing, and that's the energy we want. There are so many kinds of banishments, and I'm sure a quick Google search can show you a thousand different ways to banish a person from your life, or a memory or sensation or intrusive thought that no longer serves you. But my favorite way is dramatic and very easy. What it involves is having a bit of dirt, some water from the waning moon, and a piece of paper 
And that's it. Take the piece of paper and write down that which no longer serves you. Take time with it. If just writing it summons up intense emotions and sensations, sit with those for a while. The only way out is through. Then, mix some dirt with the waning moon water and make mud. We're just like kids again, making potions in the backyard. Crumple up the paper or rip it up or whatever you need therapeutically. If it helps, you can burn it and use the ashes. And make yourself a little mud ball. Can you see where this is going? Now, the trickiest part is next. You need to find a place where you can release this. If you have an accommodating lake or cliff nearby, they are great. If you have a quarry or a construction site that you can lob some mud into, go for it. But your goal now is to take your little mud ball of that that does not serve you and tell it, I banish you from my life, you are no longer welcome, and you will never return. And then you throw that motherfucker as hard as you can away from you. As far as ritual goes, this might be one of the most fun. And it allows you to release thing that might cause the amnesia without losing the memory entirely, to release the pain and the potency of that memory without succumbing to the dissociative amnesia, which can be problematic in other ways. I also briefly want to mention dissociative fugues. It's interesting because although dissociative fugue is a subtype, of dissociative amnesia, it's actually more commonly found in people who have dissociative identity disorder. You may have heard the term before, a fugue state, or I think they used to call it a psychogenic fugue, and it is a condition in which a person mentally or physically escapes an environment that is threatening or intolerable, and usually involves like travel physical travel, and this can be across a room and is hard to tell from sleepwalking, or it can last months and be across the world. People suffering from a dissociative fugue might snap out of it one day, might regain their memory more gradually, or might struggle with confusion about identity long term. It's a bit of a scary idea sort of like wakeful sleepwalking, not knowing where you'll end up. And there are treatments for dissociative fugue and amnesia in general. And I'm afraid I don't have a magical solution to this kind of state. But I have noticed in my life that when I'm very restless and the urge to flee becomes almost intolerable, one of the first things I can do is put a rock in my pocket. I recommend keeping rocks in your pocket at all times. I think I've probably mentioned this before. I always have a smooth stone and a jagged stone, one in each pocket. One to touch and feel the texture of, and the other one to hold on to my anxiety until I'm ready to deal with it. But the nice thing about rocks is they're grounding. You know, they're like mountains. You just got a little piece of mountain with you wherever you go. And you know what? It's hard to move a mountain. So take that restlessness. I got a mountain weighing me down. Just try to steal me away from my environment. Similarly, the grounding rituals I mentioned earlier can also help to just keep you in a state where hopefully this won't take hold. The last disorder I want to talk about 
is dissociative identity disorder, where people form multiple identities. You may have heard it called multiple personality disorder. These identities can be completely distinct. They can know about each other or not know about each other. I know this one is misrepresented in film a lot, but there are treatments for this. And one thing I find interesting is that usually the treatment doesn't involve eliminating the identities. It involves integrating them. For that reason, some people with dissociative identity disorder use first-person plural pronouns, so we and us, when speaking of themselves. I think we all have different identities that take hold at different times to responding to our environment and our situations. But when it gets to a point that it's disordered, the only real solution is seeking medical help. And that is something I want to reaffirm, is that I love to give magical support to these, uh, all these kinds of conditions and disorders and illnesses, because magic has always been the tool of the disempowered. It has been the tool of those who did not have access to non-magical solutions. It has been a weapon against the tyrants and the corrupt. But that doesn't mean it's always the best solution. Using magical solutions when there are mundane solutions available can be counterintuitive and self-detrimental. First off, there's a lot of spoons involved in using magic. It takes energy. I don't have any. I just want to nap. But also, it can be really hard and unreliable. And especially when you're having trouble controlling your mental state, sometimes holding that onto that intention long enough to perform a magical ritual is really difficult. Magic is more of a cosmic nudge towards your goal. And psychiatric intervention is more of a hand-holding. They work well together. But please don't forgo medical help for magical help. If you have medical help available to you. Like I said at the top of the episode, dissociation to some extent is normal. It's something everyone will deal with. But once it's disordered, it can become dangerous. Anytime we're not in control of our body, our body's at risk. And if the urges that take over when we are dissociating are harmful, then we might not have the capability of interrupting ourselves. So, don't be afraid to talk to a mental health professional. I know it's hard because it feels like big crazy. It feels like the thing they'll lock you up for in a straitjacket. They won't. I promise. It's normal to dissociate. And there are treatments and people can help you with this. There are medications that might help. If you think that you dissociate, but that it's normal and that you don't need medical intervention, I would encourage you to share your experiences with someone close to you who is fairly neurotypical. Because if there's one thing I've learned in life, it's that most things that I thought were normal, sort of strange quirks of existence, are sometimes disordered behaviors. And especially if it's unpleasant, if you don't need it, why keep it? If you don't need to struggle with something, why not just wrap it up all in mud and throw it off a cliff or into the rapids? Before I go, 
I just wanted to check in with y'all about this podcast. I've been making it for a while, and I've gotten some really wonderful feedback from you. You can email me at sadwitchpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook. The page is sadwitchpodcast. And you can find me on Instagram at sadwitchpodcast. I am terrible at maintaining any of these forms of communication, so if I don't answer you, please don't be offended. Um, (laughs) I'm an Aquarius. (laughs) But I would really love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about which aspects of this podcast serve you most. I'm realizing that my initial ambitions and the huge list of topics I want to cover might be a little out of reach for my capabilities at this time. And so I want to prioritize that which will serve you most. Also, if you just want to say hi, I'd love to hear from you. I see these metrics of the people who download and listen to this podcast, and it's fascinating, but I'm just here alone in my living room. Well, the cat's still here. But... (laughs) It can be sort of surreal. I always forget that there are actually people who end up listening to these words. So, if you ever just want to say hi, go for it. I'd love to hear from you. And remember, to ground regularly, to yeet your problems into the wind, and of course, to stay magic.